I want to begin with a couple of definitions, and I'm giving, well, you'll understand why I'm giving you these definitions in just a minute. Uh, so two definitions as, as we come into this, this final look at the atonement. First, I want to define irony for you. What is irony? Here's the definition. Irony is the use of words to express something other than, and especially the opposite of their literal meaning. It is often, but not always, humorous. That's what irony is. Now, another definition closely related, dramatic irony. Dramatic irony. Dramatic irony is the incongruity between a situation and the accompanying words or actions that is understood by the reader or, or the audience, but not by the characters who are speaking the words in that situation. Now, I'm giving you those two definitions right up front because most of you are Americans, which means you have no clue about irony. You don't get it. You, you, you almost are constitutionally incapable of appreciating irony. It's something, about, and if there are any non-Americans here, you'll, you totally understand this, right? The rest of the world gets irony. We Americans don't. We are a hopelessly optimistic, straightforward, what you see is what you get kind of people. Uh, it's, it's actually one of our strengths. But it puts us at a real disadvantage sometimes in understanding the world around us, the people around us. It puts us at a disadvantage in understanding the scriptures. Now, even though we don't get irony as a rule, as Americans, we don't like irony. We don't want to see it in our politicians. We don't, we don't particularly uh, like it in our entertainment. Nevertheless, we do sometimes get it. We can, if it's blatant enough, even we, Americans, can appreciate it. So we, we get the fact that, that it's ironic that Adolf Hitler was of Jewish ancestry. Right? We, we feel and appreciate the force of that irony. That one's obvious enough that we get it. Or, or that, that Joseph Stalin began his life studying for the priesthood. Oh, there's an irony for you. And we feel its weight. There's a lot of irony in history once you begin looking into it. And of course, there's a, there's a lot of irony in politics. Remember, uh, remember a few years ago, this is a couple of, couple of election cycles ago, presidential elections, when, when Bill Clinton was assisting in a campaign against an African American? Well, that's ironic. Or, or when the most conservative politician in the race was from Massachusetts? <laughs> You're kidding, right? Or, or I think we've got one coming up in this presidential cycle. I think it's quite likely that the, the most hawkish foreign policy candidate will be Hillary Clinton. There's irony for you. History and politics, as I've said, is not the only place where irony abounds. Christianity is full of it. As a religion, we are known for our concern for justice. Our God is a God of justice, and we stand for justice. 
Isn't it ironic then that Christianity began with a tragic miscarriage of justice? An innocent man condemned and executed as an enemy of the state. But of course the irony deepens right away for Christians actually claim that this injustice, Christ's death on the cross, actually secures the forgiveness of the guilty sinners. People who justly deserve God's punishment. So now we have quite the irony. We have one clear injustice securing a second apparent injustice. And we assert all of this with a straight face. Apparently unconcerned with the irony of it all. Well, some people are concerned about the irony of it. As I've, as I've mentioned before, liberal Christians have long been troubled by, by this teaching of substitutionary atonement, penal substitution, for, for other reasons. But, but lately, in our own camp, conservative pastors and theologians have begun to raise questions on precisely these grounds. That there is an intolerable irony in traditional orthodox teaching about the cross. Stuart Murray Williams simply asserts this. He says, Punishing an innocent man, even a willing victim, is fundamentally unjust. It's just unjust. There are how much theological spin you want to put on it. It's wrong. Tom, Tom Smale, another uh, self-proclaimed evangelical author, explains why. He says, Guilt and punishment are not like fines, things that can be incurred by one person and settled by another. Even though I, who am innocent of the offense, should be willing to bear the punishment you've incurred, it would be an unjust judge that would permit, let alone organize, such an illegitimate transfer. And he has a point. These critics are confronting us with the irony of traditional Christian teaching on the cross, but they don't think it's funny. For these critics, the, the, the irony at the core of our faith is, is not just tragic, it is intolerable. It suggests, in fact, to them that we have badly misunderstood something. That we should actually be talking about what Christ did on the cross in very different terms. Because the terms that we've chosen to use actually involve God in outright injustice. Something that we would not tolerate or permit from a human judge, let alone a divine one. Has the doctrine of penal substitution turned the primary demonstration of God's love for the world into a monumental miscarriage of justice? Well, to think about that question and to begin to try to answer that objection to penal substitution, I, I want us to look at another passage. This time we're not going to be looking at Jesus' words. We're going to look at what people were saying about Jesus. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 11. Verse 47. Again, I'm looking at a very small passage, taking it out of a larger context. We're going to look at John chapter 11, verses 47 to 52. John chapter 11, verse 47. 
Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. In these short verses here, we come to what I think is maybe the most ironic passage in a gospel that is full of irony. And what we see is that in a world full of sin, there is no salvation that is not an ironic salvation. It's not possible. But that's not because one injustice is used to secure another injustice. It's rather because of who needs to be saved And who must do the saving? So as we talk through this passage, which is really all about the decision to execute an innocent man for the sake of others, I want us to appreciate the irony of it all. For it's in the irony that we begin to see the real meaning of Christ's death. We're going to consider three different kind of layers of irony here. We're going to first look at the irony of the scene, what we might call the dramatic irony. And then, and then after we've looked at that second, we're going to come back around and we're going to look at the irony of the characters, what we might call the, the personal irony. And then we're going to come back and look at just the irony of the plot. And as we'll see, this third irony is ultimately a divine irony. The result of it all is going to be a, a, a view, a vision of a perfectly just but deeply ironic salvation. Praise God for irony. So first, let's consider the irony of the scene, the dramatic irony. Look again there at the the beginning, verse 47. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. All right, so backing up, giving a little bit of the context. Remember, John 11 records the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, Jesus had raised the dead before. This isn't the first time he's done it. But this one particularly stands out. To begin with, Lazarus had been dead for four days. So no one could confuse what he did here with with some sort of resuscitation, right? He is clearly dead. I mean, they're worried about the stench, you know, when they open up the tomb. Everybody knows rot has already set in. This guy is dead, dead. Think about the uh, the Princess Bride movie, you know, the different layers of dead, right? He's he's like, he's dead, dead. I mean, there's no coming back, right? And yet Jesus raised him. Jesus raised him. Then there's the fact that Lazarus lived in Bethany, which is a village just outside of Jerusalem. He was well-known in the city. So this isn't just, you know, Jesus raising some, 
you know, no name in a village way away from the center of the population. No, this is right in the center of all. It is going to make headline news that night. Everybody's going to know about it. And then, of course, there's the timing. It is just one week before Passover. So the city is crowded with people. Expectations are running high. Everybody is already wondering, is this going to be the year that Jesus openly declares himself to be the Messiah? And of course, raising a dead man only heightens those expectations. So it is just electric. Now, inevitably, some people make sure that the Pharisees, who who are the popular religious leaders of the day, know what has happened. And so in light of such an event, it's, 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 it's obvious, uh, the, the Sanhedrin must gather. And that's exactly what the Sanhedrin does here. The Sanhedrin was the official and semi-autonomous governing body of the Jews under Roman rule. And as the text makes clear, there, there is no question in their minds about whether or not Jesus actually raised Lazarus from the dead. They know he did. Now, the only question in, in their minds is the one they ask. What are we accomplishing here? You know, literally, what are we doing? It's a question full of irony. Because they, they mean it as an admission of their own ineptitude and ineffectiveness in opposing Jesus. But why would you want to oppose Jesus? A man raises a dead man from the dead? And you ask, what are we doing? It's not the right question. It's sort of like this conference was over here in a couple of hours. And, and you guys walk out in the parking lot. And there in the parking lot stands Elvis. Not an Elvis impersonator. Elvis. Elvis is standing in the parking lot. He's just standing there eating a hot dog. And you run up to him and you say to him, Elvis, where did you get that hot dog? It's not the right question. (laughs) Well, it's the same with these guys. What are we doing? Guys, that's not the right question. The question isn't what we're doing. The question is, what is he doing? And will he do it again? And will he do it for me? And so the irony deepens. Now, I think the fact that they ask the question they ask gives us some insight into our task in evangelism. I think a lot of times, either in our preaching or our personal evangelism, we're all concerned about getting the right answers to people. But but oftentimes what we need to do first is help them ask the right question. Do we we think about that? Do you think about how to help people move from asking the wrong question to asking the right question? One of the best ways to do that is to ask questions yourselves and don't give the answer. That's hard for us as preachers. Man, we all, we, we're, we're the answer guys. And we always want to give the answers. But sometimes, brothers, in your sermons, you need to speak directly to the non-Christian and you just need to ask some good questions. Maybe the questions that honestly they ought to be asking and let them hang there begin to help people ask the right questions that lead them then to the right answer. But you don't ever get to the right answer until you've asked the right question in the first place. Well, the Sanhedrin can clearly see 
that Jesus is no ordinary man. They've admitted that they don't know what they're doing. They can see perfectly well what Jesus is doing. They tell us he's doing miraculous signs. And so the irony deepens even more. Many of the Old Testament prophets had done miracles. But what Jesus is doing, these aren't, these aren't run-of-the-mill miracles. These aren't just your ordinary Old Testament, hey, a prophet showed up and he's doing some miracles. The Sanhedrin calls these signs. You know what signs are? Signs are what God specifically gave to Moses in Exodus 3 to prove that God had sent him. Signs are what the Old Testament tells us that the Messiah would do in order to demonstrate his identity as the Son of God. This is John's understanding of what's going on in his gospel. As he he makes clear in chapter 20, verse 31, these signs were recorded, he says, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now the Sanhedrin recognizes the signs, and they're worried. Oh, no, they say. If he keeps this up, everyone's going to believe in him. Oh, no. Now, isn't that ironic? The whole point of the religious leadership of Israel was to care for the people, to teach them God's word, and to prepare them to recognize and accept the Messiah when he finally showed up. Now, here comes Jesus performing the miraculous signs, claiming to be the Messiah. And they're worried. Why are they worried that people might actually believe in him? Shouldn't they be delighted? Shouldn't they be saying, finally, our work is done? Well, the explanation is found, at least in part, in the final phrases there in verse 48. Everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The emphasis in the Greek is on the word our. They're worried that if the people believe in Jesus, a revolt will happen. The Romans will come and crush it. And they, the leaders, will lose their privileged place as rulers of the temple, which is what our place refers to, and the nation as well. All right, so let's just get this straight. And we're taking this right from their mouths. A man shows up claiming to be the Messiah. He does miraculous signs to prove that he's the Messiah. And so the leaders call a meeting. But the motivation for the meeting isn't that they're worried that people might not believe. They're worried that they might lose their positions of privilege. Kind of reminds me of the scene in in Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, when, when Denethor first lays eyes on Aragon. You know, the steward of Gondor, whose whole job was, was to, to prepare and preserve for, for the day that the king returns. And then the king shows up, and he's not happy. Because he's going to lose his place. And he knows it. Friends, what, what we're looking at here in this scene is the irony of sin. For at the heart of sin lies self-interest. It's been that way from the beginning. Satan's temptation to Eve, when you eat of it, you'll be like God. You can, you can improve your place. This is what sin is all about. And the fact is, we're not really all that different from the Pharisees and the chief priests, are we? 
we reject God's standards for our lives but we, because we're convinced that, that our own standards will frankly lead to a better quality of life. We don't love our spouses, our friends, our siblings because frankly we're too busy loving ourselves and we're a little irritated at them that they're not loving us too. We don't want to believe in Jesus because that would mean giving up control of our lives, the freedom to pursue our self-interest. And and even after we've come to Christ, this is still our struggle. The, the, The struggle that I had before sadly continues to be the struggle. Am I going to believe him today? Am I going to follow him today? You know, sin promises such satisfaction but it never keeps its promise. And it can't. It's not that it's, it's um, in one sense, sort of just being mean to us. No, it it literally cannot keep its promise. Because its promise is that if you serve yourself, if you pursue self-satisfaction, you will be satisfied. But the reality is, we were not made to satisfy ourselves. We are constitutionally incapable of satisfying ourselves. And all sin does is blind us to that truth. We were made to find our satisfaction in a loving relationship with God. Sin comes along and convinces us to spend our lives loving ourselves and the tragedy is that in the end we, we, we don't even do that. We can't even do it. We're, we're left bitter and empty filled with regret and shame. And of course, worst of all, sin leaves us outside the love of God, exposed to his righteous anger. An anger provoked by our decision to love anything, everything except him, the only one who is worthy of our love. So as we think about the Pharisees here, Think about yourself. What self-interested lie are you, even as a Christian here today, are you tempted to believe? Is it the lie of lust? Satisfying your cravings? Looking at that image on the screen? By overeating one more time? By pursuing a worldly kind of fear of man sort of recognition. You know, lust goes lots of different different directions. It goes after sex, but it goes after lots of other things too. Is it that lie that if you, that if you indulge your lust, you'll actually be happy? Maybe it's the lie of circumstances, right? If only you were married. If only you were married to someone else. If only you had kids. If only you had different kids. If only you had a better job. A better house. A different career. Then, then you'd be fulfilled. Maybe it's the satanic lie of doubt that you're struggling with today. Even as a pastor, it's, it's a funny thing. I was, I've got a group of guys that I meet with. Um, we, we, we Skype once a month, 
And then we, we have a retreat once a year. These are guys that have known me for a long time. And uh, I, was, I was there when they all got married. They were there uh, right after my first kid was born. We've kind of lived life together. Now we're scattered all over the country. But, but we realized, boy, that kind of longevity with somebody, that's, you, you don't give that up easy, right? And so, so we stay connected. And we were together not long ago. And, and I was just confessing to them. I said, brothers, are you guys struggling with doubt? It's funny, when, when I was a young Christian in my 20s, I didn't doubt any of it. But the older I get, the more powerful the temptation of doubt becomes. D- doubt about all sorts of things. Doubt that, that maybe, maybe if I weren't a Christian, my life would be better. Maybe some of the hard things that have happened in my life just wouldn't have happened if I weren't following Christ. You just doubt that it's true, really? I mean, all those people going to hell for eternity just because they don't believe in Jesus? Because they're sinners? Maybe it's doubt. Here's the thing. We need to stop measuring our lives. We need to stop ordering our lives by the cramped and distorted ruler of self-interest. It's not a good measure. It's not giving you an accurate view on your life or on God. You were created to find your joy and your meaning in something much bigger than yourself. So as you recognize what that that lie of self-interest is, recognize it as sin. Confess it. Confess it to your wife, confess it to a, a, a brother. And then turn away from it and put your eyes on Jesus. Now we need to not only do this for ourselves, we need to, we need to help people evaluate their own programs of self-satisfaction. In, in, our, in our preaching, in our discipling, we need to be pressing on these points. Are, are, are people's programs of self-satisfaction, the lies that they're believing in, is it, is it going to survive the next election? What if your candidate doesn't win? What if your party doesn't win? Is is it going to survive the next bubble that bursts? Is it going to survive the process of growing old? of, Of becoming irrelevant to the people around you and maybe a little bit annoying to your friends and family? We need to help people see what these lies of self-interest are that they're believing in. And then we need to remind them that Jesus Christ raised the dead. He raised the dead and he got up from the dead himself, which is why he could say to Martha, Lazarus' sister, whoever believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. That's where our interest lies, right there. And we can trust him. That sounds like somebody who has my interest in heart, at heart, right? He's got it. He's got it way better than I do. There's a second irony here that we need to consider, and that's the irony of the, of the characters, what, what we might call the, the personal irony of this passage. Look at, look at verse 49. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. 
You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. The leaders of the Sanhedrin and, and, and the, 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 the leader, the leader of the Sanhedrin and the speaker in these verses is now the, the, the high priest, a, a man named Caiaphas. He was appointed by Pilate to this post in the year 18 AD. He would serve in that post until 36 AD when both Pilate and Caiaphas were deposed. Now, the high priest had a lot of responsibilities. He was a busy man, but two of them stand out in our passage right here and in his words. So first, in in his religious duties in the temple, of course, you, you know this, he alone was responsible to enter the Holy of Holies once a year and and to offer the sacrifice of atonement for the forgiveness of the whole nation's sins. Now, to enter into the Holy of Holies, and that was a dangerous activity. For to enter into the Holy of Holies was to enter into the presence of God. And it didn't really matter that at this point in time, the Holy of Holies was empty. There's no Ark of the Covenant there. It's just an empty space. And, you know, the Shekinah glory presence of God never descended on this temple. Nevertheless, they they still understand this is where God has placed his name. And walking into the Holy of Holies is to walk into the presence of God. And and so for a week in advance, the, the high priest would go through a very elaborate series of sacrifices and rituals. And all of this stuff was designed to ceremonially cleanse him so that that ritually he was holy and could enter in he he would also make sacrifices to atone for his own sins and the sins of his own family and even after all of that jewish tradition though we don't see this in scripture jewish tradition records that they would tie a rope to him before he went into the holy of holies lest god strike him dead and they needed to drag his dead body out as mediator between God and his people, the high priest was to be the very picture of holiness. Now, that's his religious duty. But as leader of the Sanhedrin, the high priest also had kind of a political duty. He was a bit like the chief justice of the Supreme Court and the president all rolled into one. It was his responsibility that justice was both determined and executed, carried out. So here we are. The Sanhedrin, they're in a state of panic. It looks like the Messiah has finally appeared. The people are flocking to them, and the whole Sanhedrin is worried that this is going to lead to their downfall. The self-interest is at play. And what does the high priest, the, the human picture of both God's holiness and his justice, what does the high priest say to calm them down and bring them to their senses? Well, first he calls them idiots. I mean, literally, he says, you don't know nothing. And then he shares with him, with them, his very considered judgment. He tells them, with quite the straight face, that they should condemn a man that they know to be innocent and sacrifice him on the altar of political expediency. That word there in, in, verse, in verse 50, don't you realize? It, it's literally, haven't you calculated? Haven't you added everything up? Never was there a more crass example of political calculation than this. They know he's done nothing worthy of death. 
And they know that because later they're going to have to bribe people to make false statements about him. It doesn't matter. They're convinced that if they sacrifice him for the people, not only will the nation avoid Roman destruction, but it will be better for them. They'll get to keep their place of privilege. The nation will get to keep its place, its, its, its political life. All right, so just to be clear, the Supreme Court of Israel is going to publicly and officially condemn Jesus to death, and the high priest understands himself to be sacrificing an innocent victim for the benefit of the people and the benefit of himself. That's what he says he's doing. What could be more ironic? The man who should personify holiness, convincing others to conspire to commit unholy murder. The man who should stand for justice, arguing for injustice on the grounds of political expediency. But that's just the first layer of irony here. The irony goes even deeper, for there is, of course, another unnamed character in these verses, and that's Jesus. They never use his name. But that's who they're talking about. And who is Jesus? Well, John tells us that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Hebrews tells us that he is the true high priest who mediates between God and man by offering himself as a perfect sacrifice for sin. Jesus himself tells us in John chapter 5 that he has been given all authority to judge. He is the judge and his judgment is just because he does not seek to please himself but to please his Father who sent him. The judge of the world, condemned by a corrupt court. The true high priest, murdered by an unholy counterfeit. The Lamb of God, sacrificed by the high priest as a political scapegoat. That's the irony that's going on here. People might not like the idea of Christ's death on the cross being a penal substitution, but the fact is, that's exactly what the people who instigated his execution thought they were doing. We have it right on their lips. Their logic is clear, even if it was morally corrupt. Either Jesus dies, or the nation perishes under the Roman boot. If Jesus dies, the nation lives. So Jesus is publicly and judicially condemned and then he suffers the punishment of that condemnation on the cross and all of this happens so that the nation doesn't perish according to the high priest. Of course, reading this, it's easy to think it should have really been the despicable Caiaphas that they strung up on the cross. But then that, though that would have been just, That wouldn't have accomplished anything. And it's just at this point that the irony gets really personal. Who do you relate to in these verses? I mean, as readers, that's the question we're always asking when we're reading a narrative. We're always asking ourselves, who who am I supposed to connect with? How do I relate to this narrative? Friends, if it's the innocent Jesus, then you've missed the purpose of the irony. You've kind of missed the point. We have so much more in common with the despicable Caiaphas than we do with Jesus. Not that we've corrupted justice to have the innocent murdered, just that we've corrupted our lives in order to serve ourselves rather than God. And so just like Israel at this point, we need an effective sacrifice. 
a sacrifice that will avert the condemnation of God that we have so richly earned. That means that what we really need is, is we, we need spiritually what Caiaphas thought he was providing politically. We need a substitute. We, we need a sacrifice that's going to bear our punishment in our stead in order to save us, not, not from political anger, not from political judgment, but from the judgment of God. On the cross, Jesus bore the judgment we deserve. He was sacrificed, not for his sin. He didn't have any. He was sacrificed to do exactly what Caiaphas says here. He was sacrificed to save others in their own twisted way. Even the people who put him to death understood this. But cynicism, the kind of cynicism we see in these verses, gains no benefit from Christ's sacrifice. Only faith does that. But when we look at this, I think we have to, and particularly the irony here of of Caiaphas versus Jesus, the, the false high priest, the true high priest. When we look at this, we've got to consider the extraordinary love of God in this ironic reversal of roles. Think about Jesus and and what's going to happen to him as a result of the decision the Sanhedrin made right here and how he's going to willingly accept it. You and I, we have a hard time humbling ourselves just a little bit in order to love someone else. But Christ, the judge of the world, the true high priest, the spotless lamb of God, submitted himself to the mockery of this man for you, for me. Can there be any other reason that he would do this but love? I think in in the humility of Christ that we see implied here, that we see foreshadowed, we know what's coming, that he's going to submit to this. I think particularly... As parents, as as fathers, as men, we have an extraordinary opportunity to show what the love of God looks like. Maybe particularly in our in our role as, as dads. Because humility should be of the essence of fatherhood. What, what do we do as dads? What do we and, and I include moms here too? I mean, what do we do as parents? Well, we, we cook for little people, and we wash their clothes, and now that I've got teenagers, I give them rides everywhere. I'm like a taxi driver. We bandage knees, we wipe butts, we wipe noses. This is what we do. We stay up way past our own bedtimes, because that's the only time that teenagers seem to want to talk. It's late at night, when I'd much rather be in bed. We run errands. We bring them their homework when they forgot it. We bring them their lunch when they forgot it. What do we do? We serve. And we do these things because because these are the things we're supposed to do. This is what we do as, as parents, as dads, as moms. But these are the things that servants do. We 
we serve our kids. Now, I, I wonder if, if as we serve our kids, I wonder if our kids see an attitude of humble servanthood. Or do they hear, as my kids so often hear, me kind of grumbling and complaining that they can't get their act together, which necessitates me serving them yet again. If you just remember to make your lunch the night before, I wouldn't be getting this text saying, Dad, I don't have anything to eat at school today. If if you just put your stuff where it belongs, then when you got to the practice, you would have had your ball, your glove, your mitt, and I wouldn't be running it out to you. I'm so often irritated at my kids. Now, do my kids need to learn responsibility? Yes, of course they do. I want them to grow up to be functioning adults. But it's, this isn't really about them. This is about my heart and about your heart that you bring to the task of parenting, which in so many ways is a task of humbling yourself, serving your kids out of love. Do our kids see that? It goes beyond that. I mean, as men, many of us are in positions of responsibility. We have secretaries that serve us. We have personal assistants that serve us. Oftentimes at home, the home life is, is, is oriented around us. Because we work hard every day. You know, and, and so our, our wife wants to, 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 to free us up for that. She, she knows that we're working hard. We come home at the end of the day. We're tired. And so maybe she's got a, a, a hot meal uh, ready to go. So much of male life in America is built around being served by others. And it's easy to get used to that. It's easy to like it. It's easy to begin to expect it. But brothers, how will the people around us see the love of Christ if all they ever see is everybody around us serving us because of our authority and our positions of responsibility? If the judge of the world could humble himself the form of a servant. Shouldn't we? Shouldn't we give some thought to how we can do that? Not by abandoning our responsibility. Not by abandoning our, our, our God-given roles. But in that role, showing forth the attitude of a servant. I wonder if you saw all the, the ironies that I pointed out there between Caiaphas and Jesus. John doesn't spell them all out. He just assumes that his reader is going to see them. And he can assume that because he assumes that that we're going to be familiar with the Old Testament. That's why, as pastors, we need to be committed to preaching through the whole Bible and every part of the Bible on a regular basis. We want our people to see Jesus. But they're not going to be able to see Jesus for who he is if we're always just in the Gospels and the Epistles. You could spend 10 years in Romans. But brother, you're not Martin Lloyd-Jones. You may be a great preacher, but you're just not Martin Lloyd-Jones, right? But even if you were, I think you'll serve your church better if you don't spend 10 years in Romans. How are they going to understand what it means that Jesus is the true high priest 
if you haven't preached through Exodus and Leviticus? How how are they going to understand that he's the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world? If you haven't preached through all the laws and regulations and all the teaching on the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, how are they going to see Jesus as the New Testament presents him if you don't spend some time in the sources that the New Testament uses? So move around in the Bible. Preach all parts of the Bible. Don't don't get just stuck in one place. In my own practice, I'm constantly moving back and forth between Old Testament and New Testament, kind of ping pong, back and forth. And then inside of that, I'm moving through the genre. So I'll preach a series in the Pentateuch, and then I'll preach a series in the Gospel, and then I'll go preach a series in the histories, and then I'll be in the Pauline epistles, and then I'll come back and I'll be in the prophets, and then I'll go and I'll do the general epistles, and then I'll come back and I'll do the wisdom literature, and then I'm back in the Gospels again. And I just keep moving back and forth. And what that's doing over time, after a couple of years, my people have been in every single part of the Bible. And it teaches them not only to read their Bible and put their Bible together, it teaches them to see Jesus. Their view of Jesus in the New Testament is richer. And they discover that he's all over the old. So preach the whole Bible so that when your people get to this passage in John 11, they get it. They see it. Well, all right, we got to move on. We've considered the dramatic irony, the scene. We've, we've, we've thought about the personal irony of the characters All of this brings us to the ultimate irony of the plot itself, which turns out to be a divine irony. So look in verse 51. John now commenting on what Caiaphas just said. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. At the end of verse 50, you see, it appears as if cynicism and corruption have won the day. But in the plainest, the most dramatic of understatements, John upends the entire scene. And we see that the plot is ultimately God's plot. God's idea, not Caiaphas. And it is accomplishing God's purposes, not man's. There are a couple of examples of the high priest prophesying in the Old Testament. But John's point is not that this was a a regular thing always to be expected of the high priest. Rather, his point is that in that year, that faithful year in which Jesus was crucified, the high priest prophetically declared the purpose and meaning of the Messiah's death. As, As one commentator has put it, when Caiaphas spoke, God was also speaking, even if they were not saying the same things. Friends, here's divine irony. Caiaphas had declared that his fellow priests knew nothing. In fact, Caiaphas knew even less. And yet, in a a mocking judgment of this cynical political priest, God caused him to speak words truer than he knew. And, And then this divinely inspired, this divinely orchestrated irony goes even deeper. Our passage is framed by the Greek word for gather, So in verse 47, the Pharisees and the chief priests gather together the Sanhedrin in order to figure out, you know, how to save themselves ultimately by killing Jesus. But the end of our passage, 
John tells us what the true result of that gathering was. The true result of that gathering was that Jesus' death was not only for Israel, but it was also for the scattered children of God to bring them together, literally to gather them together, the same word. As a result of the murderous gathering of the Sanhedrin, the scattered people of God would be gathered and made one. He's referring to the Gentiles. The nations of the world, scattered and divided since the judgment of Babel, excluded from the promises of God since Abraham. But God had promised that through the seed of Abraham, all nations would be blessed. And so Jesus, the the promised son, the promised seed, comes to die not just for the children of of Abraham, the biological children of Abraham, ethnic Israel. No, he he comes to die for, for the nations of the world, the children of God scattered wherever they are. As, as Jesus said just one chapter earlier, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this Jewish sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Caiaphas, you see, thought he had quite the plot. But the fact is, he was just playing a bit part in God's grand drama. From eternity past, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit had a plan of their own. And in that plan, the Son, at just the right time, would take on flesh so that he could represent sinners like you and sinners like me before the bar of God's justice. And then he lived a perfect life so that divine justice had no claim on him. And then, as our text says repeatedly, he willingly died for the people, for the nation, for the scattered children of God. And in that death, he not only represented us, he stood as our substitute. And here then, finally, is the answer to the objections that we began with. If Jesus were an unrelated third party to God's just complaint against us, then we might have reason to balk at the apparent injustice of the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. But Jesus Christ was no disinterested outside observer. As the second person of the Godhead in his divinity, he stands in perfect union with God. So he is part of God's complaint against us. But as fully man in his humanity, he stands in perfect solidarity with mankind. Like us in every way except without sin. And the scriptures are clear that through faith, sinners like us are brought into union with Christ. So that our sins are credited to him and his righteousness is credited to us. In just a little while, I'm going to be getting on an airplane to to, to fly back to Portland. It's really important that I get on it. It's of no use if I'm near it. There's no point in trying to follow it. If I'm under it, I'm going to get hurt. But if I'm in it, then what happens to the plane happens to me. My relationship with the plane is really important if I'm going to see my kids tonight. I need to be in it. So it is with Christ. It's no good to just try to follow him as a disciple from a distance. It's no good to to sort of be near him and like to associate ourselves with Jesus. 
It's, it's not enough to be like under him somehow. No, we need to be in him. And this is what the New Testament tells us that faith does. Faith unites us to Christ. So that just as Christ is one with the Father, so Christ becomes one with us. And what's true of him becomes true of us. Friends, it's a union of love. Like a marriage union. Just as real. Here's how Paul, the apostle, put it. Using baptism as a picture of this union. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? If we, have been, if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Here's the thing. Here's where we're going to conclude. Caiaphas was right. This is the beautiful irony of the passage. Caiaphas was right. Either Jesus dies for us, bearing our sin and the punishment that our sin deserves, or we die, bearing our own sin. But how will we ever pay back to an infinitely holy God the debt we owe? And so if we die, and we will, it must be an eternal dying to satisfy an infinite debt. Friends, here's the irony of salvation. Not that one injustice secures another, but that a holy God would take on himself the sins of his unholy people and pay that penalty through the death of his holy and only begotten son that we might become the children of God. This is the irony of the cross. And it confronts each of us. That in his death, we find what is better for us. For in his death, we find life. Brothers, do not stop preaching this message. Do not stop trusting in this message. Do not stop sharing this message. For it's the only message that we have. And to abandon it is to be without hope and without God in the world. But in this message and with this message, we have God himself. Let's pray.